This episode of Medium Plus is brought to you by the Yakima Valley American Viticultural Area. Numbering 230 and ever-growing, AVAs are found in states all across the U.S. Yakima Valley was one of the earliest established in 1983, not long after the inaugural Augusta AVA from Missouri in 1980. If you throw a dart in the center of Washington State and then draw a line straight down, you will find Yakima Valley AVA near the Oregon border, not far from the tri-cities of Richland, Kennewick, and Pasco. Like a Russian nested doll, Yakima Valley is found within the enormous Columbia Valley AVA and is furthermore home to Red Mountain, Snipes Mountain, and Rattlesnake Hills AVAs. Top varieties from Yakima Valley include Syrah, Cabernet Sauvignon, and even Riesling. Look out for single vineyards such as Bushy, Lewis, and Upland, among others. Those in Seattle or Portland should make a point to take the three-hour drive and witness an undulating landscape of vines and hills up close, with Mount Adams making appearances during clear skies. Yakima Valley, a sight to behold in the vine-hugged heart of Washington. What's up? This is Nick Davis with Medium Plus. Welcome to the show. Today's episode features an interview with a wine pro, as suggested by that intro. I sat down with Yashar Shayan of ImpulseWine.com, an internet-based retailer of fine wines based here in Washington State. Yashar has been taking wine seriously for over a decade, and I frequently run into him at tastings and events around town. I know, big surprise, right? Yashar has shared his skills and passion for wine in many arenas, including the Auction for Washington Wines and Bellevue Lifespring, two fundraisers which really give back to our community. His big smile and good cheer are hard to miss, so keep an eye out at your next tasting. Without further ado, I invite you to listen in on our conversation. So I made some tea. Excellent. You like tea? Yeah. Do a little bit, please. Okay. Of course. Shoot. This is a, um, I, I combined good. two teas. I did a um, English breakfast tea and then this other one called Straight from the Fridge, which is uh, <laughs> like a herbal teasane blend. Um, there's this tea company in Fremont called uh, B. Fuller's. And they, hmm. they like combine all these tisane blends and it's good. What's tisane? So tisane, so you think of like chamomile tea. Mm-hmm. Uh, tea, the plant itself just is Camellia sinensis. So you think of white tea, black tea, green tea, pu'er, oolong. Those are all actually tea. Right. But like mint tea or chamomile tea, the term tisane um helps identify those as, okay, they're kind of brewed like tea, but sure. not from the same plant. So what we might call herbal tea, more or less? Herbal tea, same thing. Gotcha. Cool. I've not heard that term. Yeah. It's, it's good for hipsters to know. Uh, not that you're a hipster necessarily. Well, I mean, but... you can't be a hipster if you don't, you know, learn some of that stuff. So. You got to have the lingo. Yeah. <laughs> you got to, so I'm trying to, you know, just That's keep good. up with the kids. So. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. The kids. Good for you. <laughs> uh, so, Yashar, how do you say your last name? Is it Shayan or Shayan? Shayan. Mm-hmm. 
Is that a Turkish name or Persian? Uh, my first name is Turkish. My last name is Persian, although I suppose technically it's like maybe Azerbaijan. Maybe. I don't know. You'd have to go there and interview <laughs> yeah. some people. Yeah. Did you grow up in Seattle area? Um, I came to Seattle to go to UW in 2002. Okay. So I, I was born in Tehran, lived in Iran uh, for about seven years, and then um, moved to Vancouver, Washington in 91, hmm. and then uh, went through second grade through high school. Through high school there. Yeah, and then came here. Stayed. Stayed. I mean, it's a good city to be in. Yeah, definitely better than Vancouver. I mean, Portland's cool too, I suppose, but I'd say this is a better city for wine. Um, more restaurants. I mean, they got no shortage in Portland, but more wineries, more things going on in general, more importers. The concentration is just higher overall. Yeah. So I'm guessing, like all of us, you didn't study wine at UW. No, I got into wine around maybe junior year and thought it was right around the time I was looking at declaring and immediately I started looking through the catalog to see if there's something to major in but there wasn't no <laughs> thought about transferring to wazoo but then I realized I would have to go to wazoo if I did that so that wasn't um, <laughs> didn't want to live in go dogs <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, yeah I didn't want to move all the way out there part of the reason I came to UW was because I wanted to go to a bigger city, coming from, you know, I haven't been in Vancouver, Washington for that long. Mm. Wanted to see a bigger city, not that Seattle's a big city, but it's a big city, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, not on the scale of New York or Chicago yeah. or L.A. Yeah. Uh, but there's advantages to that of just, you know, we have such a small community here that it takes, you know, 10 minutes to get anywhere, you know, without traffic. and True. Um, <laughs> You know, the concentration is there. So what was the moment in junior year that sparked your interest in wine? A couple of buddies of mine, um, they were these two guys. They were cousins with one another, Italian-American family, so they kind of grew up with wine at the dinner table. I hadn't. I had virtually no exposure to wine. They kind of got me into it a little bit. Um, just before I was turning 21, they uh, bought a couple of bottles for me at my request that were... You know, we were at the grocery store and I realized you can buy eight or ten dollar bottles of wine, which was, you know, I think in a, in a college student's liquor budget. So I thought, hey, yeah, I'll try that, you yeah. know, and I liked what I had. Um, and so we, I, they helped me out a little bit more. And then when I became 21, I realized I had to leave the comfort of the nest and, and shop for wine on my own. And at that <laughs> point, uh, I thought it would behoove me to learn a little bit more. So I just learned a little bit on the Internet and, and found it really fascinating. Was there that first really good wine that was above the $8 price point that surprised you? Um, maybe. I mean, I was really, at, for the first several years, I was really impressed with some of those cheap wines. I mean, I drank a lot of Spanish stuff, which I think is really easy to like. Lots of lush ripe fruits, um, generous amounts of oak. So, and they're really affordable, you know, maybe punch above their weight in terms of their complexity and, and what they have to offer. Mm. So for the first several years, I was definitely still, I mean, I was still in college until, you know, a year or two later. So I remember starting off in college in a similar situation, having a, a roommate, uh, hook me up 
and I was like, okay, I want to be classy and try some wine. And so, of course, I got Yellowtail and mm. uh, got two two bottles, got the Merlot and the Cab, <laughs> and just agonized over trying to tell the difference. And <laughs> I, I don't know if that particular brand would be the best way to <laughs> examine those two wines, but uh, I think that's a lot of, uh, that's a common situation for college kids to be in is they know that wine is out there, but where to start. So, yeah. Um, but I agree, like Spanish wine comes at a great value, as does Portugal and, and Greece. Right. Uh, so from there, did you go into the restaurant scene or somewhere else? I went, so a few months after I turned 21 and was starting to learn, I got really enthusiastic about it. And I more or less um, went online and Googled something like, Seattle wine or Seattle wine stores or something like that and called every wine shop mm. I could and asked for a job and um, the two jobs I got within a few months of each other were the first one was uh, uh, just a small kind of one person company called Seattle Wine Tours mm -hmm. that was uh, we would put people on a bus and take them out to wineries and vineyards in Woodinville or Yakima and do a little one day tour so did that that was actually um, I just I was talking to somebody about it last night and I realized uh, that was 10 years ago, October 1st. So about nine days ago was my 10 year anniversary of my very first wow. day on the job in the, in the wine business. Congrats. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Fun to think about. Uh, so yeah, did that. And then, and that was just kind of like here and there, you know, every once in a while there's a tour. And then, so my first kind of steady two, three day a week, regular shift job was, a wine shop at uh, Redmond Town Center called Fine Wines and Cigars that closed down, I believe, a few years back. Mm -hmm. And um, that was just an amazing experience. You know, I was 21 at the time, working at a, a fairly sizable wine shop, not so big to where it's a, a lot of work. It was it was just, you just kind of hang around and talk about wine with your coworkers. Had had some really knowledgeable coworkers there at the time and um, learned a ton about wine, got to taste lots of wine. And probably that's where I got more turned into, turned on to Washington wine, you know, things that were out of my price range at the time, some of the good Washington stuff at 20 30 $40, uh, fell in love with, you know, Bear and um, uh, Pepper Ridge and uh, Three Star, or is it Five Star? Uh, I forget the name now. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they're still around, they're making, they're making good wine, uh, stuff like that. DeLille. Of course. Mark Ryan. Yeah the uh the standards of excellence yeah those parts and i'm sure eventually you know cayuse and leonetti and those guys but yeah it was a while until i had cayuse and leonetti um yeah well i guess it was just later that year now that i think about it. it felt like a while uh later that year so i got to meet a few winemakers while i was working at the wine shop you know they would come and pour every once in a while learn that you could intern with wineries learn how to make wine which that Felt like what I wanted to do, wanted to be a winemaker. Mm -hmm. And I uh, got an internship working with Matt Loso, who was the owner and winemaker at Matthews in Woodenville at the time. And um, so I started working for him, Harvest of uh, 06. And uh, he was a you know fairly avid wine collector and very generous with sharing. So, And we would hang out with him and, and some of the other local winemakers in Woodenville. And, and got, yeah, at that point, started getting to drink or at least try lots of really cool higher end, you know, highly coveted Washington stuff like yeah, the Cayuse and Leonetti. Yeah. So in just a very short amount of time, you 
you know, 10xed your uh, your quality of wine from yeah. grocery store to uh, to Leonetti and Caius. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I was still in college at the time, <laughs> drinking, uh, you know, Leonetti stuff way above my pre grade. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So from there, um, what was the sort of general path from where you are now? And we can talk about that in a, a few. Yeah. I, I suppose it's a complicated story, my, my path to where I am now. Um, I'll do the short version. But uh, So I worked a few years at Matthews, did Harvest of 06 and 07 there, uh, learned a ton. And at the time, we made wine for another probably five or so people and, um, and also did a little bit of custom crush for some people. Uh, so I got to see a lot of different wines from a lot of different people. Amazing learning experience. Um, and then I kind of got interested in the whole, well, I got, maybe I got inundated with Washington wine. I got to see a lot of it in a, in a short period of time and, um, and wanted to explore more other things. And there's an opportunity to, uh, work at a place called, that was the place that was opening up that was called Bin Vivants, which is now called Bin on the Lake mm. at the Woodmark Hotel in Carillon Point in Kirkland. So there's an opportunity to work there. They were opening up a wine bar with something like 80 wines by the glass um, and a much more broad, you know, international experience. Plenty of Washington wine again. But um, yeah, it was, a, it was a good chance to to see more than just Washington wine. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I started working in restaurants, I, you know, met some sommeliers, learned that we could take sommelier classes and, <clears throat> pardon me, become a sommelier. And uh, as soon as I took the sommelier classes, it, it really broadened my horizons. I got to see so many more wines, you know. At that point, I'd still only been working in wine for a couple of years. Um, and I got a much better perspective. You know, a lot of people say things like, "This is when you have a when you have a Washington Syrah or something," and someone says, "Well, this is a Rhone style Syrah," or "Or this is a Rhone style Syrah blend." Um, that's not something I was. I hadn't had that many Rhones. Um, I was still twenty two when I started working at Matthews. Sure. Um, so, <clears throat> got to see a lot more of that when I took the Somme classes. Learned. Uh, what those different wines from different parts of the world are. Gain an appreciation of those, but it also made me reappreciate Washington wine because then I had uh, a much better perspective of what Washington wine is mm -hmm. and um, could really tell the differences between, say, a Rhone-style Washington wine and a, and a Washington-style or California-style Washington Syrah, if there was such a thing, you know. So, And that's coming down to things like uh, blending in Viognier or... Just sure. um, approach stylistically to emphasize more earth than fruit? Or? Yeah, all of that. Oak and, Oak and how ripe it is and whether it's more fruity or or uh, less fruity. Yeah, all those things. Um, I guess, yeah, so to answer your, your question about how, yeah, from there I got to here, then I kept on with, with restaurants. Worked a short time at Wild Ginger, mostly uh, just as a server did a few song things there, um, but that was a uh, while I was still at been been on the lake at that time, and then I um, started as a psalm at Sea Star around I believe oh eight or oh nine, and in oh nine I simultaneously worked another harvest with Brennan Layton, who was at Matthews or at uh, FSD mm -hmm. Winery in Woodville at the time, and that was actually another really great experience because like I said when I worked at the wine store and when I worked for Matthews. I didn't have that broad palette and the broad experience to really um, understand wines 
on an international level, but I got to see up close and personal how wine is made and how, you know, the chemistry and everything of it. Um, and that really, I think, affected how I approached things as a sommelier. And once I got the sommelier experience, I, I thought that the sommelier knowledge would also affect how I approach things as a winemaker. So then going back and, and making wine with Brennan in 09, um, that really, again, broadened my horizons. And, and Brennan is just such an amazing, knowledgeable person, uh, knows the science really well, but is not um, one-sided. He knows the art, I think, as well as he knows the science, and he loves European wines. There are a lot of people who, you know, if, if they're technically savvy like Brennan is, you would think they just are looking for technical wines that are clean and perfect, but he loves a good rustic, dirty wine as much as he likes a, a technical wine. I think, or maybe he likes the rustic wines more. Sure. Um, so that was a really good person to work with. He, I think, had a balanced approach to, to the type of wines he liked, and he had the knowledge to back it up. Um, so then, from Sea Star, I went on after a couple of years to be the wine director at Palisade, and um, while I was at oh yeah, while I was at Sea Star after Harvest at, at FSD, I worked at Wine World as well. Helped open that with David Leclerc and, mm-hmm. and Lenny and those guys. Did that for a few months just as a side job, and then when I got um, the wine director job at Palisade, that was you know going to keep me busy enough to to alleviate the side jobs. Um, did that for a while and uh, did that for about a year at Palisade and then got laid off. But uh, luckily got a wine director position at the Willows Inn. Did that for a while as well, and then um, just had the, the opportunity and the, the impetus to start my own business at that point, and so started Impulse Wine. Yeah, made the made the jump. Yep. So Willows Inn is a very unique type of situation. I don't know of really anything else like it. Definitely in Washington, maybe elsewhere, where there's such a, uh, lo- I mean, local sourcing to the max, <laughs> and uh, just isolated in a way was that a challenge for you to be out and away from everything else that's that's the first question everyone says they asked me uh why i came why i came back to seattle was it because you went stir crazy you got cabin fever Uh, far from it i i loved living on the island and working on the island it was beautiful and serene and um i lived in a small little somebody's vacation home that they were renting out that they didn't use anymore um, just up in the hills in the woods, had a gorgeous view of the water and lived a, a really simple life and planted a garden and, yeah. and, uh, and I mean, like, like most of us do, I, the majority of my time was spent working anyway, so it didn't feel like I was missing out on something cause that was obviously, uh, yeah, working 40 hours or more a week. Um, and it was a beautiful place to work. So no, I don't, um, I did not like living on the island at all. It was, I think, one of the greatest perks of working at the Willows Inn. Aside from working at the Willows Inn, it was a really fantastic place to live. I probably wouldn't have done it for the rest of my life, regardless of the situation. Probably could have done it for another few years, maybe. But, um, like I said, just was ready to start my own business. I think that's something that a lot of us could use who live in cities, is time away and time to live slower and and with nature around us um, you know having worked at summer camps and and done outdoor things i can attest to that so i know where you're coming from there um, but then you came back to seattle and just had that entre- entrepreneurial spirit and wanted to make something for yourself yeah um 
I don't know why I didn't think of the concept earlier. I mean, there's obviously a few other online wine stores around, uh, different iterations of the concept, but I don't know why I didn't uh, necessarily jump on it earlier. I suppose I just wasn't ready, but at some point I started thinking about what's my next move? What do I want to do? Do I want to keep working there? Um, and the thought just popped into my head. I thought, oh, this is what I should do. And I knew a few other people who were doing something kind of similar spoke with a, a couple of them, spoke with some other sommelier friends of mine um, to see if they had any feedback or any thoughts or, or if they just wanted to slap me and say, don't do it. Or, um, so got some good words of wisdom. And, and as I was, at first I was, it was just a thought and I thought, should I do it? Should I not? Let me just start exploring it and talking to people, do a little research. What does it cost? What kind of licenses do I need? What's the infrastructure like? And um, the more I looked at it, the more I just said, oh yeah, I think I can do this. I should I should definitely do this. Um, yeah. It just made sense. So your business model um, as a retailer, so you're, you're sourcing from what I guess both distributors and direct from producers? Yeah, whatever is sort of the best means of, of getting the best wine, I suppose. That's what I would say. So you're focusing on a certain tier of wine? Yeah, um, not necessarily a certain price, but I think it's certainly within a price range where I think the best values are. And for me, the key is really value. I think every wine that I feature is worth that dollar, whether it's a $20 wine or a $50 wine. Um, the wines all, I think, really hold their own. And a lot of them, I think, are, are worth more than what they're going for. But part of what I'm doing is really looking for the hot new up-and-coming winery mm -hmm. and uh, try to find those wineries in the first one or two vintages or so and the best part about doing that is one I get to be the first to show it to the to my customers and to the consumers and I think they appreciate that and I really enjoy it but two that new winery that hasn't really been discovered yet their wines are always undervalued and after something like five or ten years you see the pricing certainly go up as they get really established and get lots of great press and have mm -hmm. a growing customer base. So not like I will stop featuring those wines. I think if they're still going to continue being worth what they're, what they're selling for, certainly we'll continue to feature them. But uh, nothing like finding a $20 bottle of Washington wine that is equivalent to something else that someone's doing for $40. Of course. Are you holding on to a library of these early vintages and anticipating you know, these wines to build in reputation and, and regard? Or are you trying to just get them in the hands of, uh, of, your, of your customers uh, so that they can do that on their own? Yeah, I've, I'm not really holding on too much. Occasionally I hold on to a little bit. Um, my, general, my general belief is that wine is not meant to be collected. It's meant to be shared and, and drank and enjoyed. Mm. Uh, certainly some wines improve with age. I'm a little bit conservative in terms of how I believe wines age. And, and I would say that for wines of all over the world, I really think it's, it's only 1% to 5% of wines that age more than 2 to 5 years. The wines that age 10 or 20 years are, in my opinion, very few and far between. Even, even high-end, say, Bordeaux and Burgundies, I don't think, uh, in my opinion, don't age that well. Um, and uh, no offense to anybody who, who collects those and and likes to drink them, although that's that's certainly their own uh, their own prerogative, and um, they're welcome to share those wines with me. Still, I, <laughs> I I don't dislike them, but I tend to like them a little bit 
with a little bit more youth and, and vibrance. Um, as far as, yeah, I, and I think my priority, you know, when I get a wine, some of the wines I work with are really limited. It, it's not uncommon for me to feature a wine where only something like 50 to 100 cases were made of that wine. And, you know, if I get one or two cases of that, that's like 10%, which is a, a, a big big uh, representation of the whole production mm -hmm. and if i only get one or two cases uh, i would rather get those few bottles into the hands of people to hold on to one out of every 12 bottles would be again a, a big percentage uh, and it's uh, it's someone who who then doesn't get to enjoy that wine because i'm holding them all for myself <laughs> um so yeah and, and then of course those people the customers can uh, hold on to them themselves if they would like and, and see how they age i do I have a few things that I'm holding on to just because I think it was necessary. But even those ones I'll probably not hold on to for tw 10 years. 10 years, probably, of course. Yeah. Some of them I have. If they're a little more available, I might have, say, two, three bottles for myself. And I'll, I'll check them out every year and a half or so and see how they're progressing. And it's, a, it's part of, I think, due diligence of what I'm doing because I'm, when, I, when I'm featuring a wine, you know, all the wines that are in market are generally newly released. And um, we as professionals make speculations about how they'll age, yeah. but uh, we can't say for sure until we see it. You know, um, We can come up with uh, fairly educated guesses and fairly reasonable theories, but we won't know what that wine will look like in two years. So it's, it's part of my um, experience and a part of educating myself as a professional and part of keeping myself in check so that when I, when I sell a wine and I say, hey, this one I think will go easily five, ten years, then uh, I want to taste it after at least a couple of years or three to five years and, and see, was I right? Was I wrong? Did it end up falling apart? And, and there are some wines that I am often surprised at some wines that age much better than I would have expected. I just had a 03 um, Washington Cap Franc that it wasn't something I'd featured, but something that I had accidentally hung on to for a while. Sure. And uh, it aged shockingly well, in my opinion. Well, what's interesting about aged wine is, you know, as, as time goes by and you know this, like the fruit falls off a bit or, or just becomes more muted and those uh, non-fruit aromas and those oxidative tones take over. So a lot of the Bordeaux I've tried, that's you know, 15 years plus. There might be some fruit there, but it's, it's really just those non-fruit things. And the, the winemakers work so hard to carefully select their fruit and and have the best fruit in, in the land. And why not showcase that purity in youth? Yeah. Yeah, and I would say it's also uh, when you buy a higher price wine, for the, usually um, part of what you're paying for is, is that fruit. So when you think about um, whether it's first growth Bordeaux or um, a Colt Napa Cab, those wines represent generally the ripest style of their region mm -hmm. and the biggest fruit and the most concentration. So really that's what you're paying for. That's part of what makes those wines so expensive. So then to buy that big, bold, dense fruit driven wine and age it so that it is more towards leather and, and nuttiness um, is to more or less dissipate everything you just paid for. So you can take almost any wine and age it and you're going to get leather and nuttiness and dried fruits. Um, some some obviously do better than others, sure. but uh, you know those those wineries generally hang their fruit a little bit longer and and get uh, more concentration and, and complexity of fruit character, and then you hold on to those wines until that's gone. And I feel like that's actually a 
the opposite of, of the intent. Absolutely. Sometimes, not always. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps an exception could be in the uh, botrytized dessert wine world, you know, Tokai yeah. and Sautern. Uh, there has to be some degree of age-worthiness implied in the, in the winemaking there. Um, yeah. Of course, there's examples that taste great upon release, but uh, I've had, you know, Sautern uh, with age that just seems to have upgraded in, in fruit somehow. Yeah, definitely. Um, those wines, I would totally agree. Those dessert wines, the, the best dessert wines in the world, I think, are, are definitely meant to be aged, if anything, a minimum of 20 years. The, the exact opposite of everything I just said about uh, regular, I suppose, red wines that you, people age. Um, but yeah, I have a small collection of maybe six or eight Tokai uh, that are now coming up on. I think the oldest is probably 99. Um, the newest might be, I don't know, 2002 or thereabouts. So those, I have no intention of opening those. They're, they're still too young. Yeah, um, absolutely. Same with, I have a small collection of vintage port, a couple sauternes, some, you know, cam and whatnot. I have no intention of opening up those. Uh, same with Madeira. I mean, obviously vintage Madeira is, is already aged uh, 22 years when you get it, but uh, <laughs> it still needs another 22, if not 50, before sure. you drink it. And you and I have probably had some of those that the ones that are available in market that are 50 to 100 years old and oh, yeah. they're outstanding. I wouldn't drink them any other way. They're they're beautiful. And yeah. they're, they're bulletproof. Those wines yes. go through so much. Um, but, you know, thinking about, like, on my on my little shelf here, I have a few bottles and uh, the one on the right is the um, that's Raveneau Buteau uh, 2011. And I wouldn't want to necessarily hold that around for 10 years. It was... It was glorious when I tried it, and uh, I think there are people who favor a few more years on it, but it didn't taste any less amazing in youth. And I, I only find that with red wines, um, there's so much structure early on that it's just hard for me to drink. Yeah. Agreed, uh, yes. Obviously, a big tannic wine, wine that's really uh, maybe even harsh in its youth, will need to, to age a little bit more. Agreed. Do you find yourself um, tasting and, and just enjoying in your free time mostly Washington wines, or you, you do a, a whole map of things? I'd say in my, in my free time, I mostly drink uh, champagne and beer, probably. Uh, <laughs> or the champagne of beer. Yeah, well, I try to avoid that, but you know, if that's all that's around, I suppose I'll drink it and just hope nobody is looking. Um, I do probably more often than not drink Washington wine, because that's kind of what's at hand. My... When I'm drinking wine for enjoyment, it can it can kind of double as research. Sure. Maybe I have a, a few bottles that I acquired in order to check out some new wineries or a new vintage or something, and I I can count it. You know, it's it's work and it's play at the same time. I'm just exploring some good stuff that I'm considering featuring. But um, love to drink European wines for sure from just about anywhere and and non-European wines of the world too. I mean, I like. Oregon and California and um, Australia just as much sure. as I like Bordeaux and Burgundy and, and Rhone. Um, I, I really think it's it's very valuable to to diversify your tastes. I know there are some people who would drink French wine and, and would never touch Australian and maybe the reverse of that. And um, I think it's really important to, to see those wines for what they are. Um, I, I like to liken it to, uh, you know, 
like sports cars, SUVs, and uh, motorcycles. They're all extremely different, and maybe they appeal to different people, but I think they're all cool in their own right. Like if I had, if I had no budget or you know an unlimited budget, and someone said, you know, you have to pick a really cool sports car, or a really cool motorcycle, or a really cool SUV, or something of that nature, um, I think they all present uh, a compelling uh, features even though they're drastically different, as are, say, Roan Syrah and Australian Syrah and Washington Syrah. Right. You've got your Hummer. I would guess yeah. that's like the Aussie Syrah. And then you've got your, your Ducati, and that could be a European <laughs> uh, really lean, fast. Uh, would that be a white or a red <laughs> Ducati? It's, it's tough. Yeah. Uh, tough to... Take like it down a, to that level. A French Accords of Satin or something. Right, yeah. <laughs> Maybe the Ravino would be a Ducati. Maybe, yeah, I could see that. <laughs> Lean and mean. Are, uh, are, how many of your selections are like Washington or even domestic compared to international? The focus, focus is definitely Washington for ImpulseWine.com. It's um, about 70 to 80% Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, I try to focus on, when I do European stuff, I try to focus on some extreme values. I haven't done a whole lot of higher-end European wine because um, I think the, the high-end European wines, kind of everybody knows them. They're available at most wash, at uh, most uh, grocery stores and uh, wine shops. And and uh, Costco, frankly, has awesome deals on like first growths or mm-hmm. second labels of, of growth wines. Uh, I was just there and, and found ridiculous prices on, uh, you know, I'm not going to advertise for them too much, but uh, some ridiculous prices on, on a few cool things. Maybe we can take a little lunch trip yeah. there after. field trip. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't want to compete with those guys. What I can do that almost, uh, or very few other people could do, especially those bigger stores, is I can get out there and, and kind of keep my ear to the tracks and keep my eyes and ears open and get wind of something brand new that is going to be way too under the radar for a larger wine store um, or a big box store. And I can jump on that before they do and kind of carve out a niche out of that, which I feel is what I've done. And in a way, you'll build a a relationship with that producer that's so strong uh, if you're getting in with them early on that, you know, that loyalty could serve you down the line. Yeah, yeah. And you, you know, you meet someone who, let's say... um, the guys from Pike and Western or McCarthy and Shearing. And, and I'm sure they've got all these stories about how, oh, some punk winemaker came and had his first vintage back in whatever, 1995 or earlier than that probably. And he wanted me to try his wine and I liked it and I put it on the shelf and it turns out that's like Pepperbridge or Leonetti. <laughs> and you hear those stories from those guys. And yeah, maybe uh, 20 years from now I'll, I'll say, oh yeah, I you know discovered way back in the day Savage Grace or uh, W.T. Vintners and, and offered some of their first few vintages. And yeah. I've been working with those guys ever since. Uh, yeah, that's a, it's a fun thought, I think. Well, I mean, W.T., you know, hearts go out to, to JLT and he's yep. done incredible things. And um, I've tried Savage Grace as well and awesome, awesome juice there. So good. You've got a, you know, great palate, obviously. And, Thanks. Um, so I'm interested to know where the name came from, Impulse, because... For me, naming things is incredibly frustrating, or it just takes a long time. Yeah, where did that come from for you? Agreed. It um, it was a it was an intimidating process, and once you put the name on it, you have sort of sealed it 
a certain amount and, and it can be difficult to change, though not impossible. And I think that's actually, if I, if I had to, I could, I, I could change the name, but I, I'm, I'm good with it. I like the name and I think it's uh, elicited good response from people. I just started a, a brainstorming process, kind of a long-term brainstorming process. Not like, uh, hey, let's sit down and brainstorm for the next two hours and come up with a name. I don't, I don't think that works very well. And I think uh, people who have researched brainstorming tend to agree that uh, brainstorm sessions aren't good. The epiphanies come mm-hmm. in the form of epiphanies, the, the eureka moments in the bathtub, as it, as it were. Um, so I, that around the time when I was thinking about doing it, about starting my own business, I, I recognized early on that um, the concept is just as important as uh, the bits and pieces that will make up the concept, uh, things like the name, the uh, website, of course. So, you know, there's certain criteria that go into picking a name in this day and age. You want to make sure there's good availability for your .com or for your Twitter handle um, and that it's not trademarked and all those things. So I <clears throat> just went on a day-to-day basis writing down any halfway decent name that came to mind with the idea that there's no such thing as a bad idea, that I would uh, <laughs> just write them all down and even if I thought of a stupid name, it still serves as an exercise um, to spitball bad ideas. And I think those kind of get the, the juices flowing to progress towards a good idea. So I just wrote down every single name I could, that ever came to my mind in terms of what could be good for uh, an online wine store like this. And um, <clears throat> if, if you know, I had the running list, and if a good name was in that list, then I'd start kind of vetting it. Mm-hmm. And see if the dot com and, and whatnot were available, and um, and I'd maybe Google it and see what kind of things come up. Hopefully, there aren't too many other businesses that are in the wine business that have a similar name. Uh, chances are there'll be some, unless you you know went and picked like a obscure name from a dead language or something, right? Which uh, it, it could be taking it too far. It could be too complicated. So um, yeah, this one resonated with me i suppose impulse wine and um knowing at that point having developed what i thought what the concept would be which would be kind of wines that are pretty limited to where you get a little email and odds are you'll need to place that purchase within 24 or maybe 48 hours of that email so there's a bit of impulsiveness going on there you're you're buying these wines on a whim uh, obviously based on my recommendation if you if you grow to trust me but uh, I thought that fit the name and beyond any of that really what I found was I would I would wake up in the morning and that was the first thing that came to mind was uh, oh I'm, I really like that name that I came up with the other day yeah. and that resonated in my head that you know the name would would come back to me so it had a certain stickiness all the other names that I had that I had come up with over the course of that month or so, I may have forgotten them if I hadn't written them down. Whereas this one just kept popping back in my head. So I thought, well, if it's if it's sticking with me, hopefully it'll stick with others. Because obviously part of the name is you want a name that um, doesn't have to be memorable, but hopefully it's it's uh, something that's not so hard that people can't can't even remember what it was called. Um, you know, what was the name of that business again? Was it? Of course. Uh, Something, something, you know, something obscure in French. I don't remember what was it called. Something simple that people can wrap their heads around. Or something painfully generic like, you know, Washington Mm. Wine Merchants Limited or something. (laughs) I mean, 
yeah you know it has it has it's crisp it has a ring to it easy to spell that's huge <laughs> hopefully yeah yeah i mean I, I played with ideas that were just like you know people didn't know how to pronounce them or or spell them right um and <clears throat> so even if it's clever and it has you know a, a nice meaning to it nobody cares if they can't say it or find your thing so yeah it'll be pretty hard to find you because obviously people um even if they forget your name they might uh or if they forgot your website, for example, they can Google it if they remember yep. that it's called Impulse Wine. Of course. Um, so that way you're easy to find. That's that's part of it. You want to you want to be accessible to people who are interested in working with you. I think that's a a key. And uh, the other criteria I think I had was two to three syllables max, um, which you know medium plus I think certainly falls in that. Uh, wait, well close, yeah, close enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, mine is, yeah, three syllables when you attach the wine to it, so it's impulse wine. But for the first word, I figured two or three syllables max um, would be best. Rolls off the tongue. Yeah. <laughs> you can even put it in Scrabble, and it works. How many points is that? How many points? That's a good amount of points. <laughs> can you add the .com while you're uh I, I think dot .com works for Scrabble. I'm not a Scrabble pro or anything, but... When you come over to my house to play Scrabble, we'll both use we'll, the dot com. All right, good. We'll both use good. the dot com. Yeah. Modern day Scrabble websites count. <laughs> you mentioned something earlier that um, I wanted to bring up. You said custom crush. And so for those who may not know about that, um, describe that process. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it's a. it could mean different things to different people. But overall, it means that you're in some way helping to make wine for someone else who maybe um, doesn't have the infrastructure or can't afford the infrastructure or, or just doesn't want to have the liabilities that come along with expensive equipment. Um, so at Matthews, we did a couple of things. We had about five clients for whom we made the wine from kind of soup to nuts. We chose the vineyards, um, we made the picking decisions, we crushed the wine, we crushed the grapes, we fermented them, we aged them, we blended them and we bottled them and we labeled them. Um, they obviously, you know, kind of chose their own branding, what their label would look like and whatnot, and and managed the business itself on their own. But we we did a hundred percent of the winemaking and then gave them the finished product. Um, so and you see that oftentimes, you might buy a bottle of wine and you turn the back on the back label and it says like consulting winemaker so and so. Sure. Um, which I think is a great way if you. If you're someone who's interested in wine and you have, uh, you know, your your finances are strong, but you're not a, a winemaking expert, one of the a great way to certainly get a start is to, to hire a well-known winemaker. It's a good way to give some credibility mm -hmm. to your new wine is to say that it's it's made by a seasoned veteran, um, and it's it probably means that your wines are going to be better than if you made them if you have no experience. Right. In theory, hopefully, you know, you hired the right winemaker. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that is, um, those are those guys. And then what I, when I said custom crush, there were, there were guys who, who were winemakers who, who had the expertise, had their own winery, but they just didn't have, you know, a big crusher or a distemmer or a, a press. So they would just harvest their grapes, roll their truck up to our facility, mm. and they would have some, uh, fermentation vessels, whatever, you know, fermenter of their choosing, um, and we would crush the grapes using our equipment. You know, it's, it's kind of expensive and uh, and you need a big place to store them. They're large. So they would do it with us and um, and we'd 
put the crushed grapes and the juice into their fermenter and they would put it back on their truck and haul it off to their winery and, and make the rest of it. Um, occasionally somebody maybe just needed to borrow some tank space. I mean, logistics is a, is a big thing when you're making wine. Um, a lot of what you do and the timing of what you do is determined by weather and the vineyards mm -hmm. and it happens really regularly to a winery if they're working in, in, in kind of tight quarters that they might have all of their fermenters and their tanks and everything filled up with say, you know, Chardonnay and Syrah that are being fermented during harvest. And then all of a sudden they realize it's time to pick um, maybe Cabernet or something and they don't have space for it. And it's not, uh, maybe that, it, it could be hard to visualize. It's not a, it doesn't reflect poorly on a winemaker or something um, like that. It just, it's just logistics, they're hard. Um, because you're not in control of everything. The grapes are in control of uh, a good amount. So the winemaker one day realizes, uh, shoot, I need a place to ferment this wine. And so they might have come to us like at Matthews where we had a good amount of tanks and uh, a pretty big facility and they would just say, hey, can I ferment my, uh, my wine for the next few weeks in that big tank there if you're not using it? And then I will just, uh, after that, barrel it down and, and haul it away. Sure. And that was something people would do as well. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean... Wine is really a storage issue because, you know, you have your vineyards and that's kind of where, that's like the womb, you know, where this little <laughs> baby is growing. And then, you know, you have just the equipment to make the wine and then hold it for X amount of time. And then you have to have storage to hold the bottled wine. And so it, it's a lot of space. Yeah, yeah. It's a serious deal. Yeah. Sometimes uh, good wine goes bad because someone didn't have the ability to store it properly. You know, mm. if you're aging a wine for two years or even one year, that's a, a long time for the wine to sit around if it's not stored properly, be it in barrel or stainless drums or stainless tanks or concrete. Um, it, it's really crucial to have it stored properly so it doesn't get oxidized or, uh, you know, attacked by something else that you don't want to, to ruin your wine. Yeah, if the equipment isn't cleaned and disinfected, you can get some little friends yeah or even on it. or even just something like tank size you know if you had a if you had a 1500 gallon tank with and you only had 200 gallons worth of wine to put into it that's 1300 gallons of air that's in there with that wine right and um and that wine's going to oxidize Funny. yeah <laughs> by the time you, you you're ready to bottle it it's going to oxidize <laughs> it's going to be done and, and in wineries you do things like you you fill that tank with some inert gas like argon to dissipate as much of the um, the air that's in there because it's heavier than just uh, yeah it's denser air. exactly so it, it goes below but you know no matter how much you pump argon into it unless you're doing it continuously you're still that that argon itself is is dissipating uh, co constantly sure. so like if we had you know occasionally we'd have tanks where there would be a few gallons or maybe a hundred gallons of airspace and you, we would gas them like three times a day right. uh, I'm sure other places do it more and and bigger operations do have the ability to maybe continuously gas tanks as well and that's that's the best way to do it well you never know exactly how much juice you're gonna get you're not gonna get exactly 1500 gallons of juice yeah you know, so yeah you get something like uh, I think if I remember right you get about hundred and thirty gallons for every ton of grapes if I remember correctly right and you can you can estimate that but um, it's certainly not exactly hundred thirty gallons um, so in, uh, in starting Impulse Wine, was there any kind of challenge that you've had to overcome? I'm sure there have been, um, but something that you really have been proud of in building it? 
yeah, I've, I've really kind of taken it one step at a time and tackled obstacles as they've come. And I think I've done a good job of that. Um, starting out, I just, I, I didn't want bank loans or investors. I didn't have a lot of money. Uh, you know, I've worked in wine, so that means I didn't have a big savings account. So I started it with, you know, just a, a few grand at best. And part of it was I didn't want to have, say, a five-year lease on a 2,000-square-foot facility because that right there is uh, a few thousand dollars a month, and sure. I don't have that. And especially as a, when I started the business, I was hardly making any money in the first few months. Like, there's no way I could have afforded that unless I had uh, a large loan from somebody in the bank. Um, so part of it was figuring out, again, logistics, just like what I said about winemaking. It was, uh, where am I going to operate out of? Where am I going to store wine? And how will I be able to get the wine into the hands of my customers? And um, at first, I the very first month or two, I think, I was working with a local um, wine storage facility. And I was storing what little wine I was storing over there. It was temperature controlled, and that was nice. And they allowed me for that first month or two to just uh, have a one day a week kind of pickup day. I think I had chosen Tuesdays. So I would just be there for, during their open hours for that eight or so hour time span and people could come by and, and just pick up their wines. And that didn't work out so well for me or for the wine storage facility. So then I, I as that was, as, our, as that agreement was coming to an end, I, I realized I'd do something else. And I just, there was something I was batting around since the beginning and was, uh, wasn't sure if I wanted to do it, but at that point I just decided to do it. And that was the concept of just me delivering the wine to your door or to your office myself and doing it for free. And um, so I just decided to do that. I said, instead of sitting at a place for eight hours waiting for people to come by, I think it would be a, a better use of my time if I, I could probably you know do the same deliveries in just four hours. And yeah, it costs a little more because of gas and whatnot, but uh, I would just rather have that extra four hours. Um, and I mean, you know, when I first started, I was only selling a few bottles here, a few bottles there. So it was a, it was a big waste of time to sit around waiting for a, a couple of customers over an eight-hour period of time to whom I could just deliver to, yeah, in, in an hour or two. Even if, even if deliveries were in, say, Bellevue or Kirkland, it's still it's just an hour or two if you when you're starting out with a couple customers. Obviously, as, as it's grown, now I still do um, I still do the free personal delivery myself, and it, I spend a little more time on that now as, the, uh, as orders have picked up. But it's still, I think, a better use of my time than to just sit in a warehouse all day long waiting for people to come uh, pick up. And um, I just do about four or five hours of delivery each day, not every day of the week. Sure. But uh, I get them out, and then I'm back and I can do whatever work I need to or yeah focus on other things but get it, get it done with instead of waiting around <laughs> and you're out there connecting with your clients on an individual basis and um, as you would be if they were coming to pick it up in person but you know it's, it's still nice that you have that involvement and that you're you're a direct face to your company it's not just going through FedEx and then arriving without like anonymously yeah absolutely I think it adds a nice personal touch it's something that no one else is doing it's it's very unique um, even if there might be another wine store or two who offers delivery but 
I think this is the only one where you're actually getting it delivered by the guy who not only owns the company but pick the wine out as well. So if you have any questions, you know, when I deliver the door to when I deliver the wine to your door, often people will say, you know, oh, uh, so what do you think? Should I drink this now? Should I drink it later? I mean, I write a lot of that stuff in the emails as well, but uh, odds are most people don't read a full long you know, several paragraph email, most people just kind of skim through and, and pick up on things. That's, that's how I read, you know, things like that, mm -hmm. newsletters. Um, so then people often have questions about the wine when I deliver it. And if it, if I had a, just a, a delivery person, whether it was FedEx or, or somebody who I hired personally, they wouldn't necessarily be able to, to engage with the customer at that point at the door. And, and a lot of times when I meet people during delivery, they also, might say, oh, hey, I had that wine that you delivered last week. I tasted it. It was great. Loved it. My friends liked it. Um, so that's a, a, another way to get good feedback. Uh, and it's in that way, I can understand the clientele a little bit better, too. So I can see, hey, people really like that wine. I should, I should feature more wines like that. Or, you know, only a few people gave me compliments on this other wine. So maybe that one wasn't as popular. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really good way to build rapport, but also get feedback, which I think is really important in, in any kind of business, but certainly in wine where you're, where you're selling something based on, on personal preference. Well, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's not just your vision, but how people are receiving it and then you adapting to you know, their preferences. Yeah, absolutely. So how are you hoping to grow personally and professionally just over the next you know, short-term period. Good question. Mid-term period, even. <laughs> right. Um, I don't have any really definitive plans. I will certainly continue to um, to taste wine and 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 study it as I have been. Um. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know I don't have a I don't have a real direct answer for that to be honest, and I'm okay with that. Um, I I don't believe in in absolutes, you know, when you sit down and say, this must happen. Mm -hmm. I have a, a vague idea of where I want to go and, and what I want to do, but um, nothing so concrete. I, I kind of like to just take things as they come. When opportunities come, I, I like to think, I, I think them out thoroughly and, and approach them cautiously. Um, but I don't necessarily have a, a hard idea of what the future should look like. And I'm okay with that. Just take it as it comes one day at a time. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm doing kind of the same thing. I have ideas that I want to pursue or execute, you know, over the next general period of time, but you know, things uh, come and go. And there's this concept of Wu Wei that comes from Taoism of just you know, flowing and, and just taking, it's like if there's a stone in the middle of a river, the water just goes around the stone. It doesn't have to fight the stone, right? So you just, you're the river and you just, take your course as you need to. Yeah. Uh, you've probably seen that reel of Bruce Lee saying that. Have you seen it? <laughs> I, uh, I should check that out. I, be water, my friend. Be water. Oh, Bruce of course. Lee says. That's what Bruce Lee when says. When you put the water in the cup, it becomes the cup. You put the water in your hand, it becomes your hand. Be water, my friend. Yeah. And I, I totally agree with that. And I, I, I love Bruce Lee. And uh, it's, good. it's a good video. You should watch that. <laughs> or since we're drinking tea, you think of like the, the teacup. And once the teacup is full and it runs over, you can't fill the cup up more. The cup just overflows. So, you know, once your your time is limited and 
you can only make so much use of it. So my interpretation is just be happy with what what we have. And um, I, I'm sometimes driven to want to take on more and, and always be striving for something different or, or greater. But being satisfied with a, a full cup and not trying to overfill it yeah. is... I think that's a great way to look at it. Yeah, and I think a lot of us do try to overfill our cup or fill it up more than once, if you will. <laughs> and uh, it results in, a, I think, a lot of stress for people. And you see, you know, not to start getting too philosophical, but we live in some stressful times, I suppose. <laughs> but it's, it's sort of artificially stressful. Like, it is stressful in reality, but for reasons that are unnecessary, you know, getting caught up with social media, which is sort of this constructed thing that, but it does connect people. But, uh, you know, a lot of running around and, and making too many plans. Uh, yeah. It's like, maybe I should go live on Lummy Island. and Absolutely. I encourage it. Live more simply. <laughs> Everyone should live on Lummy Island once in their life. <laughs> awesome. Well, can you think of anything we should uh, touch on before wrapping up? No, I think that's pretty good. It's been good talking with you. Likewise, I appreciate you uh, coming on and uh, you know being a part of this. Thanks. It means a lot. Yeah, cool. So there you have it. Yashar Shayan, everyone. What a guy. Give him a shout at impulsewine.com. I'm sure he can hook you up with some tasty Yakima Valley Syrah if I haven't swooped in yet. Music for today's show is by Happy Orchestra, a funky beat machine from here in Seattle. Catch them online at happyorchestra.com and starting in November at 9pm each Wednesday evening at Connor Byrne Pub down on Ballard Ave, the hippest street you ever did see. Medium Plus is produced by me, Nick Davis, at Danger Studios in Fremont, Washington. Catch up with me at mediumplus.com or facebook.com slash mediumpluseverything. More Beverage Jive is coming on the regular, so stay tuned. Thanks so much for listening, and peace.
What does Tony the Tiger say about Washington wines? They're grape.